listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. One of the details in the text for the day, which is Acts 16, is that a funny thing happens to Paul and Silas as they're on their way to the place of prayer. In fact, that's how the passage that we're going to read opens with a reference to that funny thing happening on the way. Acts 16, 16. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl. This is one of those passages in Acts where Luke is telling the story as if he were there. He shifts in and out of first-person narrative all the way through Acts. Sometimes he describes what's happening in the third person. They were going. But here, he is one of those who is with Paul and Silas on the way to prayer, and on the way they meet a slave girl. And we'll look more closely at the text in just a few moments, but... Here's the story, in short. They're on their way to the place of prayer, which is a kind of stand-in for synagogue. They would be praying with other Jews and then discussing the texts for the day, the liturgical texts for the day. So they're on their way there, and they encounter this slave girl, probably a very young girl, who is filled with a spirit of divination, And she has worked as a fortune teller, a soothsayer of some kind. And she's making a lot of money for some of the prominent men in the community who have found her gift, bought her, and now use her to tell the fortunes of of people in the city. And they profit from it. After a while, after a while this, this girl begins to say that Paul and Silas are slaves of the Most High God and they proclaim a way of salvation. And for days, she follows them, saying this over and over again. In fact, the word that you, Luke uses is that she's shrieking it over and over and over again, almost ecstatically. These are slaves of the Most High God and they proclaim the way of salvation. Eventually, Paul gets annoyed. I'll say more about that in a few moments. Paul gets annoyed and casts the spirit out of her, which turns out to be a bad idea, at least in some ways, because as soon as he casts the spirit out of her, all of the men, those prominent men that I mentioned earlier, who profit from her gift of fortune-telling, now have lost a means of income a means of substantial income. And so they drag Paul and Silas before the magistrates of the city. They have them condemned and beaten and thrown into prison. And while they're in prison, you know the story, there is an earthquake and the, the doors open and Paul and Silas lead this jailer to the way of Jesus. And that's essentially how the story, how the story ends. This, the, the passage for the day ends with this man and his family 
being baptized. But I, I, I want to, as I said, we'll look through the text um, a little more closely. But I, I want to start by emphasizing that point, that all of that kind of plays out as a result of this happenstance, this, just, this meeting, this chance meeting with this slave girl on their way to the place of prayer. And all of the stories we just heard are stories that are meant to underline that, that so much of what matters in our life happens just by happenstance. We just happen to be in this place at this time, meet this person in this moment in our life, and years later we can look back and see how God wove that happenstance experience into something beautiful for us, into something significant for us. And I think it's absolutely crucial that we as Christians never lose touch with the ways in which God surprises us in those throwaway moments of our life. There are forms of Christianity, forms of spirit-filled Christianity that are so focused on what God does in the worship service, what God does when we gather together on Sunday or Wednesday or in the churches I grew up in, Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday, Saturday night, Friday night, and revival. What, what God is going to do in the worship service at camp meeting or youth camp that we forget that God is not in any way limited to what happens here when we're gathered in worship. This is not the only time, this is not the only place where God is being God. But in the throwaway moments of our life, the moments where we're not thinking holy thoughts, not that all of you are thinking holy thoughts right now, but in moments where we're not thinking holy thoughts, where we're not thinking about God at all, God remains at work. Where we're just going about the business of living life, God is being God and orchestrating and coordinating these experiences for us, out of which come beauty and goodness and transformation and salvation. Right? And this, this is that kind of story. It's a story about people just on their way encountering someone who then turns their lives into a whole new direction, and in that whole new direction, God brings about transformation for people they would never have met otherwise. But it is, I think, important to point out that they are on their way to the place of prayer. As true as it is that things happen in the throwaway moments of life, as true as it is that it, things happen when we're just on the way, it's also important that we are on our way to places that matter, to significant places. Attending church is not the end-all, be-all. I don't think that attending Sunday morning service is definitive for what makes a Christian a Christian. But it is significant. Even if it's not the place where God does his best work in your life, even if it's not the place where you particularly enjoy it. I mean, I've known some people that they enjoy church. Like, it's not because they love God or love people. They like church. They enjoy it, and they would do it no matter what because they draw a kind of energy from it. But whether you like church or not is kind of beside the point. It's significant that we gather together because there's something about those kinds of commitments, being commitment to showing up at the same place over and over again across the length of our lives, the long arc of our lives, that makes it so that we're the kind of people to whom accidents can happen. It's... it's I think in many ways what defines the Christian life is that if we're willing to have the kinds of habits 
that are forming, then, we're the kind, then we become the kinds of people to whom accidents, holy accidents, can happen. We come and gather on Sunday morning not because we expect every time something world-shaking to happen. I mean, this morning, you're going to hear this sermon, which is going to be world-shaking for you. But not every Sunday, right? But, sorry, that was, that was a joke. <laughs> but, I mean, you can't expect every time you come to Sunday service to leave with your world turned inside out. And it might never happen for you. But something about coming to some Sunday service over and over and over again makes us the kind of people to whom something world-changing can happen. And as Paul and Silas are on their way to the place of prayer, they encounter this slave girl. And because they're the kind of people they are, they're able to recognize what has happened and respond, and one thing leads to another. Uh, Richard Serra, who's a kind of cranky, foul-mouthed, artist. And there are a lot of cranky, foul-mouthed artists, it turns out. But he's, he's most famous for his sculpture work, although he's a painter and has a whole career of different art forms. But he's most famous for his sculpture. And it's, it's abstract, and he works mostly in giant, gigantic um, sheets of steel that he gets from slave yards. Not slave yards, shipyards. I've been writing about slavery right now. That's why I said slave yards. The shipyards, and he, which he worked in as a teenager. And he makes these gigantic, freestanding sculptures. And I heard him interviewed once, and as I said, he's kind of cranky and foul-mouthed and smart aleck. But the interviewer was talking about how astonishing it is that he's able to work and torque these giant sheets of steel into these remarkable sculptures. And Sarah said, oh, I don't work in steel. Steel's not the point. I work in space. I just use the steel to create the kind of spaces that I want people to experience. I think that's what church attendance is like. Church attendance isn't the point. It isn't that we have a relationship with God because we come to church, because we come to prayer, because we read our Bible. That's just the way in which God makes us into the kind of people who create a certain kind of space around us. It's the space that matters, but the only way to make that kind of space is to have practices like these that shape us. It's not as if somehow reading your Bible pleases God, but reading your Bible is a way in which your imagination, your heart can be shaped into Christ-likeness, and that's what matters. But it's the shape of Christ-likeness that the Bible gives you as it's rightly read that matters. I think, I think I grew up in a kind of Christianity that confused the steel to, for the point. Going to church was the point. Reading the Bible, reading the Bible was the point. Praying was the point. Raising your hands was the point. If you didn't do it, the person leading praise and worship would call you out for it. Carol's not nearly hateful enough about some of you during praise and worship, right? She needs to really embarrass you more often. <laughs> because for, for, for me, that was the point. But now I realize it's not the point. But without it, I wouldn't be able to be shaped into the kind of person who, while I'm sitting at the restaurant, or I'm driving down the road, or I'm alone in my room, or I'm having a text exchange with someone, I have my heart and spirit shaped to respond lovingly and faithfully to them. 
That's why we do what we do over and over and over again. So they're, they're on their way to the place of prayer, and they see this slave girl. Paul casts the spirit out of her, and they end up in prison. Again, in the churches I grew up in, this was a key text. Because at midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing. I mean, they are having church in the jailhouse. And so if I were in a different mood than I'm in, I would you know, grab one of these handheld mics and have Carol get on the organ, and we would have church for a little while in the jailhouse, right? So the, a, a, kind of, a kind of spirituality that says, no matter what situation you're in in life, no matter what's going wrong, whether you've lost your job or your marriage is breaking up or your neighbor is causing you trouble, even if you're in the jailhouse, just praise God and have revival. You, you've never heard this kind of spirituality before? It's kind of annoying, really. But, but there is a kind of beauty to it, too, right? A kind of don't, don't let your circumstances determine what's happening in your heart. Just even if you're in the jail at midnight, sing. But Luke is a fascinating storyteller. And in this story, he actually is very sparing with his details. Like Hemingway-esque. He hardly tells you anything about what the jailer or the prisoners or Paul and Silas are thinking. In fact, this is hilarious detail. Listen to, listen to how he actually says what he says about the singing. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, that's hilarious. Notice, he, he, he doesn't tell you what Paul and Silas's motives were. Now, I think I was conditioned to think that they're ecstatic with love for God. But I don't know. As I get older, the more I think this was a kind of like, not resentful, but also kind of ironic singing and praying. That they, they're not carried away in the throes of the Spirit. They've just done this work over and over again. They've prayed and they've, sent, and they've sung over and over again. So here they are doing it at midnight because they can't sleep. Because as I get older, there are lots of nights I can't sleep. And I pray as a way of falling asleep. So now I imagine this story as Paul and Silas, not young, on fire for God missionaries, but old cranky men who can't sleep. They're in prison and they're like, well, I guess we'll sing and pray. And Luke says, and the prisoners listen to them. Now, again, I think I used to imagine this as the prisoners, as rapt students, just caught up in the glory of it all. Now, I think of it as the other prisoners are also cranky. Are you seeing the theme here? Like the, something about crankiness keeps showing up. But that the prisoners are like, gosh, these guys, they won't shut up. I mean, what are we going to do but listen, right? Here we're in prison, and as if that weren't bad enough, it's midnight, and as if that weren't bad enough, these guys are singing. And then an earthquake happens, right? Again, in the preaching I grew up on, the earthquake happened because they were singing, and we tried to sing until an earthquake happened. I mean, that's, what, that's why we sang the same songs over and over and over again. 
We thought, you know what, one more time around that verse and it, it might happen, right? Crank that course up one more time. It might happen this time, right? But Luke doesn't say that. He doesn't say God sent an earthquake. He just says, and an earthquake happened. And one of the things I love about the way Luke is telling this story is that he's not saying God did this. He doesn't say God sent them to the place of prayer and they met the slave girl. He doesn't say, and God urged them to sing and pray. He doesn't say, and God sent an earthquake. He just says they're on their way to the place of prayer. They meet a slave girl. They end up in prison. They decide to pray. The earthquake comes. Because I think overwhelmingly in our life, and maybe for some of us always in our life, we're not going to get God doing things in such a dramatic way that it's unmistakable. I mean, sometimes we leave that impression. I mean, listening to some people talk, God talks to them more than anyone else in their life talks to them. But I think for most of us, that's not true. For most of us, if God talks at all, God talks rarely. God's like reluctant to speak, especially when I need him to. But God is like children in that he talks most when you have the least time for it and least when you most need it, right? And that's at least my experience. And for some people, God doesn't speak at all, not in that way. And in this story, we just have stuff happening. They're on their way to prayer. They end up in prison. They're singing in prison. The earthquake happens. But what's beautiful about it is in the midst of stuff just happening, they keep responding in faith. They keep responding in love. They keep responding hopefully. And that, I think, is, is critical for us, is to learn instead of waiting on God to do stuff to us, we just live life. And as we're living life, we try to respond as faithfully as we can moment to moment. Instead of waiting on the heavens to open and the spirit to settle like a dove or whatever bird you prefer, hawk or eagle, you pick, right? Instead of waiting on that kind of moment, just live your life and try to respond as as gracefully as you can moment to moment. If the earthquake comes and the jail is suddenly open, respond gracefully. If the earthquake doesn't come, respond gracefully. If you're on your way to prayer and you meet the slave girl, respond gracefully. If you're on your way to prayer and you don't meet someone, just go on to prayer and pray your prayer and go on about your day. I think we we can't expect every moment of our life, or even most of the moments of our life, to be these dramatic interventions from God. We just have to be human. I think some of us are trying to be saints, and God just wants us to be human. We're trying to be mystics, and God just wants us to be human. Just live your life and try to respond as faithfully as you can. Then, in this experience in the jail, the text says that the earthquake comes and the foundations of the jail are shaken and all the doors swing open. It's fortunate, really. And... The jailer's response is, once he realizes what's happened, is to kill himself. 
which is a kind of astonishing response when you think of it. His instinct is not to try to recover the prisoners, to find them. He doesn't call out to the other guards and say, we have to recover the prisoners and put them back in their cells. It's just as soon as he realized that this catastrophe has happened, he's ready to kill himself. And I cannot shake the sense that there's something deeply broken in us, maybe not all of us, but in many of us, so that when things go wrong in our life, our instinct is self-harm. Maybe we're not suicidal, although in a room like this, I promise you, there are a shocking number of people who are either thinking about suicide or have attempted suicide. If, if you and I knew those stories, it would shock us. But even those of us who aren't suicidal, who haven't been suicidal, we can still be self-destructive. I think there are all kinds of ways. We, we are endlessly creative in finding ways to harm ourselves. There's an old idea that runs back into the ancient world that people do what they do always because they think it will make them happy. And I think that's just silly. Like actually meet a person and listen to them talk. I think so much of the time, we don't know how to be happy. We're afraid of being happy. We do things to sabotage our happiness all the time. We feel guilty about being happy. We're afraid of being happy because we know happiness can't last, and we're afraid that if we settle into happiness, then we're just hastening the disaster that's going to come to take the happiness away. So much of what we do in our life is self-sabotaging. And in this moment, the jail, the doors swing open, and almost immediately, the jailer's ready to plunge his sword in his heart. And Paul says, do not harm yourself. And this, I think, is the basis of the church's ministry. We want to keep people from harming themselves. Do yourself no harm. We are all here. In fact, I think this is my image of what the church is. The church is a jail where all the doors are open, but we stay here anyway. And what we say to each other is, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. Now, that may not seem like much, but if any of you have been around church most of your life, you know that some of the deepest wounds people carry come from being in church. That church is a place where people harm themselves and are harmed by others all the time. I mean, I, because of my job, I'm in the situation often to talk with pastors if you could hear the stories of pastors and the harm they've done themselves and their families in the midst of doing their work, you'd realize that this call, do not harm yourself, is basic. Do not harm yourself. We are all here. That, I think, is, it's, it's not a very sexy tagline. I doubt that it's, um, one that church planning organizations would tell you to use. But I think that's a great commitment for a church to have. We're all here. Yes, it's prison, but the doors are all open. We could leave anytime we want to, but we're not leaving. We're all here because we don't want you to harm yourself. 
We don't want you to do anything destructive. Don't be afraid. We are all here. And then the man rushes in, the jailer, rushes in to where Paul and Silas are, and he falls at their feet trembling. I told you Luke is a masterful storyteller. And this detail, he falls at their feet trembling, is a line right out of the story of the woman with the issue of blood. So in Luke's gospel, which is the companion piece to Acts, this, the woman with the issue of blood, touches, she crawls through the crowd, she touches Jesus' garment, the hem of his garment. Jesus stops and says, someone has touched me. He turns around, and the text says, and she fell at his feet trembling and acknowledged that she had touched him. So Luke is paralleling these stories. In one case, you have a woman with a serious issue of blood, a hemorrhaging woman who presses through a crowd on her own, touches Jesus, and then is afraid, but healed. She's afraid that she's crossed some line, that she's done something inappropriate, but she is healed. But in this case, you have a prisoner I mean, a jailer who is a prisoner to his own fear, a prisoner to his own dread of failure. And he's falling down at the feet of Paul and Silas because he can't imagine a way out of the disaster he's in. And this, as I was preparing this week, this, this is what hit me. At the root of the instinct to self-harm is the conviction that there is no future that's better than what you've already experienced. That when you become convinced that there is no future that's going to be better than the past you've already had, you don't know anything to do but destroy the life you have, subtly or explicitly, consciously or unconsciously. Because you're afraid that the future is failure. But here's the thing for Christians. We worship a God who failed and who failed on purpose. I mean, Jesus ends up on the cross by himself, abandoned by everybody, and dead. And that was the plan. Not much of a plan, it doesn't seem to me. Completely alone and dead. And that is the end of his life. And God raises him from the dead. But in doing that, what God guarantees for us is that failure is inevitable. We're going to fail. I mean, your story and my story is going to end with, and then he died. And it is going to end with being forgotten. A hundred years from now, 500 years from now, a thousand years from now, we're not going to have any family left. There's not going to be any America. There's not going to be any Florida or whatever. There might be this land, but not this state. We'll be forgotten. But our God is a God who raises the dead. That's good news and bad news. One is if you want God to do what God does, you have to die. That's the bad news. The good news is even if you die, God can do what God does. Because God is the God who raises the dead. And so we don't have to fear failure, which means there is no future I have to dread. Whatever future comes, however bad it is, God is a God who raises the dead and makes a new future, 
a new creation on the other side of whatever disaster is coming. And therefore, I don't ever have to turn to self-destruction. I don't ever have to turn to self-harm because there is always a future for people who worship the God who raises the dead. I'm almost done. I don't know what almost means, but as I, as I like to say, um, I am now shifting from quantity to quality time. So it won't be very long, but that's a reference to the quality of time. And I want to talk about this slave girl for just a minute. Again, I told you, Luke is a careful storyteller. And this is the only time in either Luke or Acts, the only time, where there's a reference made to a spirit in which Luke doesn't characterize it one way or another as holy or evil. It's the only time. Every other time in the gospel, and we're talking about 30 plus times in the gospel and 40 plus times in Acts, if I remember right, rightly. Luke talks about the Holy Spirit or an evil spirit. He will, so he, sometimes he'll say evil spirit, sometimes he'll say unclean spirit, or a spirit that torments or destroys. This is the only story in which Luke simply says, she had a spirit. And I think that what's taking place here is that she's not demon-possessed. She's gifted. She has an ability to discern, to read what someone is. We know that she's reading Paul and Silas rightly. She says... These men are slaves of the Most High God. They declare a way of salvation. And she follows them for days, saying it. But I think what we have is a case where we have a person with a gift, a natural gift, who has been taken advantage of so that that gift is being used for bad ends. It's not an evil spirit. It's a good spirit, badly used. Because this girl is not just a gifted girl. She's a slave girl whose gift is being used by these powerful and prominent men for fortune-telling. And I think this is something that we as Christians, we as the church, have to be deeply concerned about. And that is, what do we do when we see people who are highly gifted but their gift is being manipulated? Their gift is being taken advantage of. And this may be somewhat controversial, but I think Paul actually handles this situation pretty badly. Now, I think a lot of us have kind of been conditioned to imagine that the characters in the Bible, because it's inspired, were always right. That everything they did was right, unless we're explicitly told otherwise. But I don't, I don't think that's true at all. These were, these were people, men and women, they were just as human as you and I are. Being inspired doesn't change your humanity. And I think what's happening here is that Paul makes a mistake. The text says, what Luke actually tells us, is that after several days, Paul is very much annoyed. Now, Luke, I mean, he's clever, so he never comes right out and say it, but he leaves us with the impression that Paul was a bit of a hothead. In the previous chapter, 
Paul has broken off relationship with Barnabas. Which is, I don't know how you break relationship with Barnabas. I mean, Barnabas is like the, I mean, he's, he's literally, his, his name means that he's the son of reconciliation. <laughs> right? I went to, here's, this is an absurd example, but you'll get the point. My first movie that I ever saw in my life was Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and I cried all the way through it. Not from laughing, but from guilt. Because I, I knew that it wasn't wrong to go to movies, but I had been conditioned to think that going to movies was a sin, and so I made myself do it. And I sat there and cried all the way through it, right? That's what it's like. Yeah. Yeah, you know, pray for me. That's what it's like to break off relationship with Barnabas. Like how... Think of a scenario. I mean, it's, Barnabas is the nicest person there is. And you broke a relationship with him? And guess what? Paul broke relationship with him because Paul was impatient with one of Barnabas' young protégés. That's just the previous chapter. And now here is Paul with another young person who's annoying him. And he cast the spirit out. He cast it out. And what's stunning to me and heartbreaking to me is that Paul cast the spirit out, but he never speaks to the girl. Again, Luke is very, very clear. Paul was very much annoyed, and he said to the spirit, come out in the name of Jesus. This is a slave girl, younger than my daughter. She might have been 10. This is a slave girl who has a gift she didn't ask for that's now being manipulated by men who own her. She doesn't know how to hold the gift. I mean, she's just following Paul and Silas around shrieking. That's what my children do. I don't know if they're gifted or not, but they do shriek. <laughs> and they're following She's following Paul and Silas. Oh, I forgot to say, the reason it's Paul and Silas is because of the breakup with Barnabas. I mean, it's been Paul and Barnabas all the way through Acts until the previous chapter. And then Paul loses his friendship with Barnabas over John Mark. And now it's Paul and Silas. Man, I bet Silas was scared all the time. He doesn't do anything in this entire story. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. Like, dude, if he kicked Barnabas off the team, what's he going to do to me, right? And so... Paul and Silas, are, they're being followed for days. This little girl shrieking at them, and then Paul just loses his mind. Casts the spirit out, but he never speaks to her. And that might not be that significant if you didn't read Luke and Acts. And especially read the way that Jesus interacts. There's a scene... Jesus has been on the Mount of Transfiguration with some uh, another apostle who doesn't really know what he's doing, Peter. And he comes down off the mountain to, a, to the valley where the other apostles are, and they don't know what they're doing. There's a, a, a man who has a son who's demon-possessed, and they can't cast the demon out of him. And Luke is very clear. It's an evil spirit that is destroying this boy, tormenting this boy. And in Luke 9 we're told that Jesus, th three things, Jesus 
cast the spirit out of the boy, healed the boy, and returned the boy to his father. Now I want you to think about the difference. Here are two kids, two, a boy and a girl, who are filled with spirits. One of them is clearly an evil spirit that's destroying them. The other is a spirit that may or may not be good or bad. It's vague. But in one case, Paul never speaks to the kid, just says to the spirit, be gone, and then the girl disappears from the story. Now she's still a slave, but without a gift. Now imagine what that's like. You're a little girl in the ancient world, owned by prominent men, and the only thing that's keeping you from being a sex slave is that you have a gift of discernment. And now that's gone. How do you think her story went from this point? She's still a slave, now no gift. But what Jesus does when he meets a boy who has a demon is he casts the demon out, heals the boy, and restores the boy to his father. It seems to me that those are two different kinds of ministry and that Oasis can be like one or the other. We can be the kind of people who are just interested in fighting the evil that annoys us. Or we can be the kind of people who says it's not enough to fight the evil that annoys us. We have to heal the people who are being destroyed by the evil that annoys us. And we have to restore them into relationships that will sustain them across their lives. The goal is not to cast the spirit out. The goal is to heal the girl, free her from slavery, and restore her into relationships that will be whole and salvific for her. One of the things that's striking about the story of the man, the jailer, is that Paul and Silas are beaten, then thrown in jail. And Paul and Silas, they are compassionate to the jailer. They save him. And then the jailer is the one who cleanses their wounds. But this little girl is forgotten. Never appears again in the text. One of the readings that we had today for that, that Zach read for us, that was the call to worship, was from Revelation 22, in which we're told that the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And I want to leave you with this idea. We can be the kind of people who are driven by our anger, by the ways in which what we think is wrong in the world bothers us. And I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what annoys you, what evil annoys you when you're watching whatever news channel it is that you watch or whatever newspaper you read or whatever website you visit, whatever that is that annoys you. There's nothing wrong with being annoyed, I hope. Be angry and sin not seems to suggest you can be angry and not sin. 
There's a line in James where James says, your righteousness does not produce, I mean, your anger does not produce the righteousness of God. I do think it's true that God's righteousness produces anger in you. I think it makes you angry that there are men taking advantage of this little girl. But here's what bothers me. Paul seems more upset at the fact that he has to hear this little girl shriek than he is at the fact that she's a slave. I think there's something about our annoyance, our anger, that reveals where our heart really is. What really angers me? What really annoys me? Why isn't Paul grieving that this is a little girl who now has been stripped of her gift and she's still a slave? Is that, is that all I'm going to be? Is someone who's responding from whatever annoys me or pleases me? Or am I going to let God shape me so deeply that his righteousness makes me the kind of person who knows how to be angry about the right things? There's so much in the world to be angry about. There's no time to be annoyed because some little girl is shrieking at you. That's not the problem. The evil here is not a little girl who doesn't know how to control her gift. The evil here is the men who have bought her and are using her and the magistrates that defend it and the crowd that joined them in abusing Paul and the system that throws Paul and Silas in prison. That's the evil here. God, let us be the kind of people who know how to be angry about the right things because if we can be angry about the right things, then we can be compassionate to the right people. And we can respond in the, in the moment rightly to the people who need us most deeply. What if Paul and Silas had responded to that little girl the way they responded to the jailer? Who might she have become? We don't even know her name. But who might this little girl have become if Paul and Silas had not just spoken to the Spirit, but had spoken to her? It's interesting. At Jesus' crucifixion, there's a moment. Peter's denied Jesus. You remember this? And there's a little slave girl who's the one that discerns that Peter belongs to Jesus. That in Luke's gospel and in Luke's acts, it's little girls who are the ones that recognize the people of God. But they themselves are not recognized. The spirit and the bride say, come to those people. And this is my heart, not just for Oasis, but for all the people of God and for myself, for my family, my friends. I want to be the kind of person. I want us to be the kinds of people who don't just say, go to the spirits we don't like.
but say, come to the people who really need us. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.